Welcome to Midwretched, friends. Welcome back. Apparently, I'm going to be broken. Yeah. So we're switching things up. I know it was supposed to be Tommy's week, but it's my week. So yeah, I <laughs> sorry <suck>. about that. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that, guys. So you will be back for the Skeleton Boys in two weeks. Everybody likes you better anyway, so no, it's they fine. Don't. Yeah, my they do. My numbers are terrible. I've seen it. I don't even look anymore. I <laughs> I don't look anymore. You shouldn't. Nobody really. should. Yeah, it doesn't do. I'm I'm running short on like self esteem right now, so I don't need to risk what little I have. <sighs> well, I love you. Our listeners love you. I love you. That can fill up your little self esteem cup. Yeah, I'm trying, trying to fill it up. Yeah. All your schools love you. Every school uh, wants you. Uh, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. Our listeners want you, and they're very disappointed to not hear a story from you today. That's, it's not true, but okay, I'll just go with it. But we get to hear a story from you instead, and I have no idea what you're doing, so I am a completely fresh audience. (laughs) I have a mug of wine and a can of Verner's to offset said mug of wine. Great. So I'm ready to roll. I've got a bottle of water. I'm freshly caffeinated. I have two new holes in my mouth. Nice. And we're ready to go. Dirty. So we're going to get going. If I start slurring words, rather than it just being my normal level of exhaustion, it's because I just had my wisdom teeth taken out. (laughs) So (laughs) new excuses for my poor speech. (laughs) Fresh and new. And you're less wise now. Less wise. Two teeth less wise. They saved one of them. I was very excited because... The impacted one was cracking this other one down here. Oh, ouch. And they were afraid that they would have to, like, do something there. But luckily, they saved it. So then do you still have two wisdom teeth? You had two out. You have two left? Or did you have one that never emerged? So I had the two on my right side out, and I have the two on my left side left. Oh. They're going to leave those for now because I was already four teeth short. Mm -hmm. Because I had my canines all taken out when I was, like, ten really 10 or 12 or something yeah because my jaw was too small to fit all my teeth hmm. so my canines were growing like literally oh up you here. had like the snaggle situation. oh god oh god it was awful yeah i'm missing i have i've been allowed to keep some of mine too i have four i have three wisdom teeth i only had one out because i am also very short on teeth <laughs> <laughs> sure. i don't have like whatever one is next to your canine i lost it and it didn't come back Mm-hmm. And then I have two baby teeth. Oh, weird. Even though I'm like well into my 30s. Yeah, I have two baby teeth. It's runs in my family. That's the weirdest thing ever. Okay. And there's nothing under it. So if they ever do like die or need to come out, there's like, there's nothing there hmm. to take its place. Put implants in them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what they'll do if it ever comes out. But I, it's still in there. It's like, there's two of them and they're fine. So... They don't have any, like, decay or anything. So as long as they're healthy, I can keep them is what they say. Cool. Yeah. Why not? Cool. Why not? We'll so, well, look at us with our weird teeth. I know. With our oral anomalies. So there's no segue there probably into your story, but. No, none whatsoever. Um, so <laughs> well, let's just hear it then. I'm just going to, like, awkward segue us into terrible things. Mm. Um. 
So my goal is to release this episode a day early on March 1st. So hopefully you're hearing it then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The reason for that is because March 1st is the National Disability Day of Mourning. Mm. The Day of Remembrance for Disabled Individuals Who Have Been Killed by Their Caregivers. Mm. So if you're going to get any, you know, trends on where this episode is going to go, I apologize. It is a rough one. Yeah. Today we're going to be talking about a case of filicide. Filicide is the legal term for a parent murdering their child. Mm. According to ASAN, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, in the last five years, 550 people with disabilities have been murdered by their parents, relatives, or caregivers. When this happens to non-disabled children, it is universally grieved. Parents are appropriately blamed and appropriately punished. However, all too often when this happens to disabled children, parents, and caregivers, the killers are often portrayed in a sympathetic light. Mm. Attention is placed on disabled persons' low functioning and high support needs, their humanity very often disregarded, and killers are given minimal sentences, if any at all. There are many, many cases that you can look up on the National Disability Day of Mourning's website, on ASAN's website, and cases of parents, caregivers that have committed atrocities, that have been off on minimal sentences, reading some of the cases where this has happened the news coverage is pretty tragic Mm. often the coverage will talk about caregivers burnt out and how they had give up their life and how really that this was a case of you know it's sad but it's okay it's grieving um they did this in the interest of their child which again just kind of downplays the humanity of the individual and the fact that that person had a life and when we report cases in that light it creates a really dangerous pattern where parents of disabled children are excused from the actions and it makes it easier for the next case to play out We've done a couple of cases that are kind of within the databases of the Disability Day of Mourning, including Marcus Fiesel and the Racine County Jane Doe. Mm -hmm. In the past, if you want to just continue down this really tragic episode that we're going to go down today. I'm glad you said that because I was just going through our catalog to find others that we should like just take a minute to mention. Yeah. Yeah. So those two definitely... Those are the ones that came to mind. We might have some other ones. Mm -hmm. But yeah, today's case is another one of those. And if you hear me clicking, today's fidget is I bought these weighted pens. Ooh, fancy. For my arthritis. Hmm. Because I tend to like just death grip pens when I write. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, I have a weighted pen here. So if I drop it, that's the crash that you hear. Okay. Good. Good to know. Everybody's dropped it a couple of times and it makes a really shocking noise. So, all right. So today's case, we are going to open on Centerville, Michigan. Not too far from you, actually. Uh, yes, indeed. Okay. I'm sure a town you, again, have driven through. We're going through a lot of, like, drive through towns lately. Mm, yeah, we really are. It's like, oh, did you think this was interesting? No, you're wrong. No, let's tell you about something awful that happened here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Centerville is not far away at all. There's not too much terribly to say about Centerville, Michigan. It's a small town, only about 1,500 people. It's a little suburb. You know, kind of any 
typical drive through town. Yeah, I mean, it's not really like a suburb of anything. It's just like a itty bitty little town, like in the middle of absolute nowhere. About an hour from South Bend. It's kind mm-hmm. of, yeah, stuck in between South Bend and Kalamazoo. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I drive through it when I drive to Kalamazoo from here and there's just nothing, nothing there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So today's case is going to open on February 27th, 2008 mm-hmm. at 8.34 a.m. The home at 105 West Burr Oak Street in Centerville, Michigan, where 37-year-old Marcia Springer is cleaning up in the home where she lives with her husband, two biological daughters, and her stepdaughter, Callista Springer. That morning, her husband, Callista's biological father, had left for work. He had gotten out of the house early that morning. And Callista's sisters, who were 12 and 14 at the time, I'm going to leave their names out of the story because they were kids. And minors, I just, yeah. Yeah, minors. They had left off for school that day. So it was just Marsha and Callista left at home. 16-year-old Callista was up in her room. She was homeschooled due to her disabilities. While Callista was upstairs, Marsha was doing kind of her normal daily routine, vacuuming the living room, cleaning up the kitchen, all of that stuff. Marsha herself was also disabled. She was legally blind from diabetes. Mm -hmm. She had some limited vision in one eye and kind of got around with that limited vision. According to Marsha, this is what happened on that morning in February. While she was vacuuming the house, she started to smell smoke. She assumed that the smoke was coming off of the vacuum, so she turned it off to let it cool down and kind of bumped around doing some other straightening up things. So she left the vacuum, let it to cool down, and after a couple of minutes, she came back into the living room to finish up her vacuuming. Once again, however, after just a few minutes, she would smell the smoke. She claims that she again turned off the vacuum, went back into the kitchen to grab grab herself some water. But apparently when she returned to the living room just a few moments later, she saw that the vacuum had caught on fire and that fire had been spreading across the living room. Mm. She grabbed the fire extinguisher in an attempt to put it out, but she couldn't get the pin out of the fire extinguisher. As the fire continued to grow, she fumbled, attempted to take action, attempted to get around to the house, trying to get up the stairs to get to Callista. However, in the end, all she was able to do was to grab the family dog and run out to the front door quickly. The fire department would quickly arrive to put out the fire and investigate the scene. As the firefighters worked, neighbors started to gather around the house, asking Marsha questions, comforting her while medical workers tried to, t- tried to tend to her wounds. Workers immediately obviously asked Marsha if there was anyone else in the house, and Marsha said that her stepdaughter, Callista, was upstairs in her room. She wasn't able to get past the flames. Marsha presented with burns on her hands and in her face, so the firefighters believed that Okay, she had clearly tried to get upstairs and probably got hit in the face with smoke and with flames. Mm. While the workers were trying to put up the fire, they were eventually able to get upstairs into Callista's room where they were met with a terrifying scene. Her legs were covered in burns, although it was determined that she had not died from the burns, but only from smoke inhalation. The burns had never reached the majority of her body. Mm. However... The reason why Callista was unable to leave the room they would find was the chain wrapped around her waist that tied her to the bed. Oh, my gosh. 
Callista was bound to her bed using a dog's choke chain and zip ties, leaving her no more than 10 inches of freedom. Callista would never have been able to leave that bed unless someone else had come into the room and cut her free. So while the flames entered her room and filled it with smoke, Callista was trapped with no chance to free herself. While her body burned, she would eventually die of smoke inhalation and was declared dead at the scene. Wow. When Marcia and Anthony were eventually interviewed about this, because obviously once investigators came and they saw the scene, they had a lot of questions about what Callista was doing chained to that bed. Mm-hmm. Anthony and Marcia had both said that the chaining system had only ever been used as a temporary solution. They described Callista as a girl with significant disabilities. They stated that she was autistic, had pica, and was aggressive, and would flee the home and raid the house for food at night, and that that was why she had to be connected to the bed. Mm. They had claimed that they had previously used a medical alert system, but the medical alert system had broken just days before the dog chain was only a temporary solution while they worked to replace the alarm. Now, as a brief aside, like, obviously there are medical alarms for situations like this and for people like this. Most commonly, they're used on elderly patients, patients mm. with dementia who wander at night. Medical alarm systems are not uncommon in a lot of medical settings. Basically, all they do with various levels of technology is alert if somebody got out of bed, got out of the room, or stepped on a pad that indicates that they would have gotten out of the bed. Mm. There are also medical bed restraints that exist. These are really intended only to be used under medical supervision and only in the most extreme cases when other systems have failed. Yeah. There is no regulated use of a dog chain and zip ties to keep a child bound to a bed. Mm-mm. However, Anthony and Marcia claimed that this was the only way that they were able to keep their daughter safe in the house and not raiding the house for dangerous materials, eating things that she shouldn't have been, and not being aggressive and violent toward the rest of the family members. And that was what they told the state lieutenant. And the state lieutenant listened to their story and said, quote, I believe this family did what they felt they had to do to keep their daughter safe. And the death of Callista Springer would initially be reported as a tragic accident. Wow. I mean, that is... I mean, I feel like, wow, I've got just like a lot of jumbly thoughts right now, but I feel and maybe... Like, I have to recognize, like, the the extremely, like, privileged position that I am in when it comes to, like, medical parenting. But, like, the amount of, like, education and support that is actually available is is pretty stunning. Like, Like, not to say these systems are not broken and messed up and that access is easy. Like, I I don't mean to imply that at all. But, Mm -hmm. like, I... The information for how to care for her adequately exists in this world. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it exists. So, maybe I'll keep my commentary to that for now, but... I, I've worked with 
families that struggle with this with their kids with mm-hmm. again and we talked about Prater Willie before mm-hmm. um, about having to keep like locks on refrigerators and stuff like that I've worked with kids that do kind of flee at night mm-hmm. it scares a lot of families and they end up you know doing a lot of stuff that you know most of us would not consider doing mm-hmm. but only under advice from providers and this is where we really talk about what is the least restrictive environment what is the safest actual solution for this child Mm. oh i didn't know we were gonna have an lre conversation i'm i am here for this (laughs) so again what is initially reported here in those early local newspapers is a family experiencing an unforeseeable series of accidents. A daughter that had disabilities that were physical and that gave her physical and cognitive limitations, a broken medical device that was intended to keep Callista safe, a freak vacuum fire, and a mother who tried to be- tried her best to keep her daughter safe and failed. Mm. That series of freak accidents is what was initially reported. But as days would pass and people would talk and the investigation would move forward, this story would take quite a sharp turn. You see, the Springers had lived in Centerville for several years. And while Callista's sisters had attended the school there, they had friends, they played, they were seen running around the house all throughout the neighborhood. Callista was rarely ever seen outside of the home. She had been pulled from public school several years prior and into homeschool. Her old friends, her teachers, her families had always been worried about her. They had always been worried about her safety, her treatment, and her care. Hmm. And as soon as news of the fire came out and news of Callista's death happened, their worries were immediately validated. Hmm. An autopsy on Callista would show that at the time of her death, she weighed only 91 pounds. That's what I was going to ask, because there's... I saw that there's there's a crime scene photo that's not easy to look at but yep in the part of her that you can see she's shockingly thin she was 16 years old 91 pounds i don't know what her height was but i i've seen that picture she looks tall she i mean honestly tall. she looks lanky she looks lanky but at 91 pounds she was weak and malnourished the doctor who performed the autopsy described her physique as that of quote a little kid she would be found with uh eight to ten doses of benadryl in her body which is quite a lot yeah people from the community would come forward initially slowly but with increasing frequency sharing that they had expressed concerns about possible abuse and neglect of Callista for years they described that they had fears that she was being denied food experiencing verbal abuse use of restraints isolation from family friends and community All reports were made by the adults in her life before she was taken out of school. Dozens of reports to child protection expressing fears for her immediate safety. Because Callista was very much loved by the people that knew her. Prior to her being pulled from public school, she had friends. She had teachers that cared for her. And she had the love of basically kind of anyone that knew her. And so I want to talk a little bit about kind of who Callista was, because she was a girl that really was kind of full of love and potential and humanity. Mm. And while there are kind of differing opinions about her disabilities, I don't honestly think it matters. 
No. Her level of disability does not really matter to me. Mm. Callista was born on May 22nd, 1991 in Sturgis, Michigan. That is hard to say. Sturgis. Sturgis. She was born to Norma Swiggles and Anthony Springer. All of these S's are hurting my mouth. Yeah, it's very Midwesty. <laughs> Uh, Norma and Anthony were together for about the first nine months of Callista's life. By all accounts, Norma loved Callista and was very, very active in her life. But abruptly, when Callista was about nine months old, Anthony moved to Kalamazoo, taking Callista with him to move in with his new girlfriend, Marsha. Well, Norma continued to attempt to be in Callista's life, making visits, taking pictures, and she was a cute kid. She was a cute, cute baby. There are some pictures up online. We'll post them on the socials. She was a very cute baby. But for whatever reason, Anthony would begin to prevent Norma from seeing Callista when Callista was about 13 months old. Hmm. Norma did her best to fight this, calling regularly, even going to court for filing for custody for Callista. Norma expressed to the courts that she was worried about how Callista was being treated by Anthony, stating that when she saw Callista... She seemed malnourished and expressed concerns about abuse. Of course, Anthony denied this. There were suits and countersuits regarding custody, and as we all know, those are expensive as hell to keep up. Hmm. Anthony painted Norma as unable to care for Callista. He filed for Norma's parental rights to be denied in May of 1997. This was granted. On what grounds? I am not certain. Hmm. Nobody has seemed to really be able to fully answer this question about what happened that Norma completely lost her parental rights. There are some that say that she gave up her parental rights. Mm -hmm. However, a story that was posted, again, this was just literally a story posted on a Facebook page, so I have no idea, um, stated that Norma never signed away her parental rights, nor did she put Callista up for adoption. The story on the Facebook page stated that Norma was presented with the with the papers to terminate her parental rights, but she still had them unsigned. Hmm. I don't know what happened, but eventually Callista was legally adopted by Marsha. Hmm. So that by the age of six, Callista was living full time with Anthony and Marsha, who would eventually marry and have two more daughters. They would move from Kalamazoo to Centerville, Michigan. Accounts of Callista, who she was, and how she lived are completely different based on who you ask. Marsha's sister, so Callista's aunt, would describe Callista in this way, quote, At 13 months old, she couldn't smile. She couldn't play. To me, she was deadly. I was afraid of Callista. Oh, God, that makes me mad. She said, quote, She had no responses, no smiles, no nothing. She was only six, even at six to seven months old. She claimed that when she went to see the baby at Norma's apartment before the adoption, Callista would be covered in poop, needing diapers. Callista would pick things up off the floor like thread, dirt, cigarette butts, and put them all in her mouth. She caught Callista painting with poop in the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, you know, the question obviously is like, why is that stuff on your floor? Because mm-hmm. any toddler is going to put that in their mouth. Literally. That is what they do. I mean, I have spent many, many minutes today pulling things out of my kid's mouth that should not be in there. <laughs> and it's most of the ages at zero through like three. Yeah. And she's not a quote unquote scary child. I 
Which, like, let me just say, like, no child at 13 months of age is scary. No. No child at 13 months of age is deadly. How do you look at a 13-month-old and think of them as deadly? Even if they don't smile, even if they are flat affect, even if they don't, like, giggle at you. Yeah. I mean, you can have concern for those reasons, but to call a kid who's presenting that way scary, I feel like puts them into a really, really unfortunate box very, very early in their life. And I think that this is, in the 90s through the early 2000s, there were some really atrocious anti-autism by the autism industry. (laughs) Are you going to talk about that at all today? I didn't put it in here, but do you want to? Yes, I think. So I I just say that because I think that autism is something that most people probably feel like they understand and very few people probably actually do. And I think that how how you understand it depends on how you grew up exposed to it. Mm-hmm. If you're not, not directly entirely. working in a yeah. field where you're, you know, mm-hmm. kind of working with, you know, people all the time, right? Yeah. So in the, I'm going to at least mention this. So in the early 2000s, Autism Speaks, and I think it was the NYU Child Study Center. Mm. I have it in an old presentation that I gave a while back. Um, They released a series of the most atrocious ads about how, like, autism steals your child from you and how these children with autism, they have no affect and they don't make eye contact and they can't smile and they just look at you with dead eyes. And there was a... A video that Autism Speaks had released with a mother who literally her autistic child is just in the background playing. And it's like literally like playing with her and hugging on her and trying to get her attention. And the mom is like, she doesn't respond. She doesn't express love. And, you know, I I, sometimes I just think about killing myself. Wow. Sometimes I, I like I think the line is sometimes I think about strapping her in the car and killing both of us. Jeez. And this daughter is, like, literally, like, hanging on her neck, like, Mm. trying to get her attention. And it's really upsetting. And I think you saw, like, that being kind of, like, the the heyday of that particular line of, like, propaganda. Mm -hmm. You saw that also, like, reflected in just, like, popular media related to autism, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. television shows that might portray an autistic kid or whatever. Like, you saw those. I think we still see those stereotypes, but you saw them really, really often and very heavy-handedly during that era. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were very ableist, and they really painted, like, autism as this evil entity. Yeah. I remember an episode of House that had an autistic child on it that was just, like... It's like, really, really? Like, this is the set of stereotypes that we're going with right now? hmm Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> and I want to be clear. We'll kind of talk about, like, Callista's health and developmental needs. It's – she was not report – I don't – I'm just going to keep going because it's messy. Mm. Well, <laughs> it's I messy. guess – yeah. So I just I presented the question, just like, are we going to talk about it at all? Just to kind of put out there, like, again, like, there's, 
what we always say in education is you've met one child with autism, so you've met one child with autism. Mm-hmm. There's a, a billion different ways that, that that presents itself, that these kids develop and function and, and all that stuff, like in large part influenced by their environment, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, I just like, I think that there are a lot of stereotypes that people will call to mind that if, if you w- want to take the space to dispel or discuss, I wanted to make sure that the door was open for you to do that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to that. Okay. I'm going to set it on my shelf mm-hmm. and I'm going to talk a little, I'm going to give a little bit more kind of history and okay. kind of who Callista is again. So we're talking about kind of Marsha and Anthony's family and kind of what they saw in Callista, Mm -hmm. including one of Callista's sisters who would testify in court, said that Callista would rip things apart, make holes in her mattress, would get aggressive, and would wander the house at night trying to find food. Another family friend that had been over and seen Callista said that she, quote, didn't have a shut-off switch. This friend reported seeing urine stains on a torn apart mattress and seeing Callista eat old gum out of an ashtray. Marsha and Anthony claimed that she was unsafe, impulsive, harmed family members, and attempted to ingest dangerous things like razor blades. Her aunt claimed that Callista would fight her sisters over toys, even kicked Marsha one time. Anthony would say that he, quote, never expected much from her. And he would say that he always expected her to be dependent on help and would never be able to live independently. He claimed that they were told Callista would never learn impulse control or reasoning skills by the doctors. Was she verbal? Oh, we're going to give it into it. Okay. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. At some point in her childhood, Callista was diagnosed with pica, which we've talked a bit about before, the eating of non-food objects. This can be anything from paper, bed stuffing, razors, dirt. It can be scary. But I will say the first thing that you should do if a kid is diagnosed with pica is take them to a doctor and see if they're possibly malnourished or missing some key nutrients in their diet. Mm-hmm. I've only worked with a couple of kids with pica, but both of them, it was paper. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be like by and large, like a pretty common presentation. Paper is common. I have seen kids where it is more dangerous things I've seen and worked with kids where it's thumbtacks with pencil lead with. One kid, it was literally anything, and he mm. would swallow Legos, and the, it would it would get to be dangerous things. Yeah, and again, it's, scary. it's at that point, it's about you as a parent managing that and ensuring that you have a safe environment mm-hmm. for that child. I will also say that, like you mentioned, toddlers will eat anything. Yes, I remember being at my sister's house, and we're all like sitting on our patio, just having a couple of drinks, and her like little two year old is just eating like literal handfuls of dirt. <laughs> <laughs> for no reason yep mine just got a hold of it, an acrylic fingernail a couple weeks ago <laughs> that i had to fish out of her mouth so yeah 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 and again this is usually pica is diagnosed when that extends beyond the developmental age mm-hmm. like where it would be okay this child knows the difference between food and non-food this child has developed skills and impulse control mm. that sort of thing um, Callista was also diagnosed with pervasive developmental disorder or PDD, 
PDD is no longer an official diagnostic label that we use. However, I miss it greatly Mm. Um, because PDD basically means that you have experienced a sequence of developmental delays and various clusters. However, they don't meet specific criteria for something like autism or a cognitive delay or a language delay, that there's kind of a little cluster in constellations there's really, really varied patterns in PDD, and that's kind of why it was a nice diagnosis mm. because you could say, okay, you have PDD, here's where the needs are, here are the services that you need, and you didn't have to jump through hoops to get kids things like OT or speech therapy or medical nutrition therapy. Mm. Often PDD was referred to as atypical autism because it included some symptoms that we would see in autism, but not the full criteria. Now we have just a very obnoxiously rigid diagnostic criteria for autism. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not happy about it. But because of this, it's because of it being a highly variable diagnosis, you would see anything from speech and language difficulties, cognitive impairments, cognitive delays, motor symptoms like apraxia, behavioral sensory regulation symptoms, that sort of thing. It is unclear and we don't have a lot of specificity as far as Callista's needs or Callista's presentation. Mm. However, based on Marcia and Anthony's descriptions, they described her as very high needs, incapable of caring for herself, aggressive, impulsive, and unsafe, and in constant need of supervision so that she would not steal food or be a risk to herself and others. When asked if they had took Callista to therapy, they said yes, quote, several times. Which doesn't give me a lot of hope. No. Now, that is one picture of Callista. This dangerous, impulsive, unsafe, without any skills or any self-care ability. That is one picture of her. Given very strongly by the people who are responsible for her death. Mm-hmm. And I want to give the alternate picture of her by other people. Callista's grandmother, Susan Langton. So this was Anthony's mother. Described Callista as a happy and well-behaved kid. She reported none of the aggression, none of the violence or scary behavior that was otherwise described by the people I talked about. The same friend that said Callista didn't have a shut-off switch was asked in court if her behavior, what was her behavior in terms of be- good behavior versus misbehavior. And that friend said, oh, it's like half and half. Hmm. <laughs> Which sounds about like any child to me. Mm-hmm. Tracking back a little bit, so Callista lived with Anthony and Marcia from 13 months onward. Legally, they had full custody of her by the age of six, which would have been in 1997. There were a lot of accusations thrown between Anthony and Norma. So me, this speculating, there was a lot of tense, unhappy battles, and it's very likely that Callista was exposed to quite a bit of trauma Mm. during those years. And even after Anthony got full custody in 1997, it wasn't long before people started to express concern about Callista's well-being in Anthony's home. The cases that I'm going to read are from a court filing by Susan Langdon. So again, uh, Callista's grandmother, Anthony's mother. May 5th, 1997, Callista's aunt, Valerie Springer, reported to CPS that Callista had a bloody lip and was concerned that she had been harmed in the home. Mm. Just a month later, the same aunt reported that Callista had burns on her fingers that had become infected from not being treated. 
Two years later, in May 1999, a social worker with a community wraparound program. So essentially a wraparound program that connects family and community services to children with mental health, developmental Mm -hmm. needs. They come to your home. They do a bunch of wonderful work. They help provide some of those, like, hey, if you're having trouble with her impulse control, let's set the home up for success. Let's keep some of those things that she might eat out of her way. Mm-hmm. Let's see what do you need to help her communicate. Yeah, and one of the things initially that I was kind of like raised an eyebrow about was just like the move from, and I, there could be any reason that a family would move, but mm-hmm. the move from like a very um, progressive and accessible city like Kalamazoo to mm-hmm. somewhere like Centerville, where like you are nowhere near like quality or variety services you know yeah it's like having those community wraparound services is is that much more crucial because you don't have access that immediate access to like stellar otherwise care right community wraparound programs can be really really wonderful and do a lot of help for families they're underfunded they are under resourced but Mm -hmm. they can do wonders in as far as giving education and giving resources if you have a kid with developmental needs or if you have a kid with even medical and mental health needs. Mm-hmm. However, I don't think that Anthony was really happy with this wraparound service because they were the first to report as early as 1999 that Callista had was being restrained to her bed. The family stated that this restraint was for Callista's safety, that without the restraints, Callista would wander at night, eat unsafe things, and become aggressive. We're not, I'm not certain, and it's not recorded what types of restraints were being used at this time. However, the CPS recorded the use of restraints and the family was given safety warnings about the use and told to consult with a doctor about proper medical restraint and other alternatives to ensure that if you need to keep her in her room to keep her safe, that you are doing it in a safe manner. Mm-hmm. At this time, so we're in, we're still in 1999, it would appear that it wasn't just Callista that was suffering under the hands of Anthony. That same year, Marsha would file for a personal protection order against Anthony. Hmm. In her application for the PPO, she told the judge that Anthony had been threatening her and mistreating the girls. By this time, Anthony or Callista's two sisters had already been born. Hmm. I'm going to quote from Marsha's report in the PPO. She said, quote, Tony never has a kind word to say to the girls and has never told them that he loves them. It's just constant yelling to shut up, get out of my way and get out of my sight. He doesn't see any need for counseling from himself or for our marriage. My children and I need help getting out of this vicious cycle. It's only a matter of time between the children and myself become the physical targets in these rages. The fact that I am blind, having very limited sight in one eye, I feel in order I feel without an order of protection in place, Tony will do great bodily harm to me or my children. This four page letter described essentially living in fear of Anthony stated that he was constantly angry and full of rage. It cited that he had previously been found guilty of embezzlement of about $3,000 from his previous job, accused him of having bipolar disorder, ADD, and depression that went untreated, unacknowledged, and unmanaged. Mm -hmm. She stated that he was unable to maintain employment and had become violent in the home. She cited that he would rip rip the phone off the wall, punch through a window, and forced her to have sex. Oof. She also stated that he would pick up roadkill off the side of the road, boil the flesh off, and reconstruct the skeletons. Hmm. 
Marcia said that this uh, went far beyond a taxidermy hobby, that he was obsessed with it and would spend hours at a time. Hmm. And it left kind of everyone in the family a little feeling a little uncomfortable. Well, sure. I mean, my father would bring home roadkill to eat. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, if dear. there was like a dead deer on the side of the road that was in like decent shape, he would. Yeah. I thought it was a southern one. No, and occasionally he would hit an animal in order to hunt it and bring it home to eat. I mean, that's one way to hunt. I mean, it is indeed a way. (laughs) Anyway, this PPO was granted on June 28th, 1999, but would be dropped two months later. Mm. When she dropped it, Marsha reported that they had begun counseling and there was no longer any fear for safety. So... I'm looking at all of their reports of Callista in the context of knowing that. Mm-hmm. In the context that there are already multiple reports to CPS. There's already requests for a protection order. Many of her behaviors sound so much like trauma symptoms to me. Yeah, yeah. So was there, uh, you said she for a time she was in school, like traditional school we're gonna get um to kind of what would go on at school okay and i think that this is interesting because these are people that had nothing to do with the family Mm -hmm. these are just teachers and also people that are experienced in dealing with kids from a lot of different backgrounds that have a lot of different needs these are professionals in child development Mm -hmm. and look like we have no reason to lie about your kids seriously yeah. Nobody is trying to get kids in trouble. Everybody just wants kids to be healthy. Mm-hmm. When kids are safe, they're wonderful students. Mm-hmm. So, yes, eventually Callista would enroll in school. In reports, she did receive special education services. Um, however, it was unclear to me, based on what I read, kind of the level of, like, inclusion, general education, cross-cat, any of that stuff that she was in. So she had special education services, but that can mean – a variety of different things. Mm. Yes, it sure can. <laughs> right. So, yes, teachers reported that Callista was honestly wonderful to have in class. She was social. She was engaging. She was active in her learning. She was talkative. She wanted friends, even friends that would report at trial. They said that Callista was kind. Teachers described her as bright with maybe a few behavioral struggles. But she was playful, well-mannered, and would smile from ear to ear if she could get your attention. She could read. She could write. She could speak. She could communicate. Teachers reported minor concerns, primarily about stealing small things in the classroom. Gel pens, lip gloss, candy, that Mm. sort of thing. So attention-seeking, attention-seeking, and attention-seeking. When I think of an elementary school girl stealing gel pens and lip gloss and candy... All I think is, oh, this girl wants to fit in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like impulse control issues and Mm -hmm. a desire to fit in. Yeah. Yep. When confronted with the stealing, she would always apologize, return the items, and give you a big smile. Mm -hmm. Teachers understood this as Callista desperately wanting to have friends that she didn't have much. She stole things to fit in. She stole the things that she couldn't have. Mm -hmm. Again, this is such a common behavior of kids that have experienced abuse. Like stealing is one of the most common like 
you tell me a kid is stealing stuff like that and stealing kind of insignificant things like that's one of the dings that's going to kind of go off in my head Mm -hmm. obviously not a one-to-one I don't want to say that but yeah it's one of the dings yeah but she was also really well liked one of her teachers one of her special education teachers recalled that the other kids in her classroom wanted to throw a party for Callista because they wanted to give her these things so the teacher let the kids have a party to give Callista things like hair bows and lip gloss and candy to Mm. make her feel included None of her teachers reported the level of classroom disruption, impulsivity, or aggression that was cited by her parents. In fact, much less than her disruptive behavior or the minor issues that they experienced with stealing, her teachers were really concerned that she would come to school every day looking like she hadn't bathed in days, Mm. wearing the same dirty clothes, and constantly hungry. No teacher report that I saw described pica behaviors, but all reported that she was constantly hungry and looking for food. Mm. Many of her teachers, her classmates, and her classmates' parents would attempt to step in. On May 18th, so again, this is a lot of this is from student from Susan Langdon's um, court filing. On May 18th, um, 2000, a school counselor reported to CPS that Callista had a bruise on her cheek. And that when she had asked Callista what happened, she stated that her father kicked her. She also apparently told the school counselor that her parents locked her in her bedroom at night. Just a few months later, in September 2000, that same counselor reported that Callista was being locked in her bedroom again. When CPS would investigate, they gave the family warnings, suggest that they used more effective mechanisms to keep her in her room at night rather than chaining her to the bed suggested using a medical device and the parents said yeah we sometimes use it but sometimes we just use this dog chain and zip ties in august 2001 an anonymous report was made that callista was being mentally abused the claim was that marcia had said to callista that she would be put in foster care when she turns 12 but she hoped that callista would die before then callista was 10 years old at this time A few years would pass before more reports would be made. October 29th, 2004, a teacher reported that Callista said she was being chained to her bed at night and not being fed at home. That Marcia, Callista told this teacher and this teacher reported to CPS that Marcia would not let her use toothpaste or deodorant and that Marcia was physically abusive. Less than two weeks later on November 8th, 2004, another teacher filed another report that Callista had a black eye and Callista reported to her that Marcia forced her to lie on the floor, grabbed her by her hair, and dropped her fit and dropped her face first onto the ground. So this is why they pulled her out of school. Yep. Because as these reports stacked up, finally CPS would do a bit more of extensive of an investigation. A social worker finally interviewed Callista, Marcia, and Anthony, and Callista's sisters. When that social worker met with Callista. Calista just asked a social worker, could you please convince Marsha that I don't need to be restrained at night? And could you please let her let me brush my teeth? Because I get teased at school for my teeth. Mm. Marsha and Anthony convinced the social worker that all of their precautions were necessary and that Callista was a danger to herself and others. They called Callista a liar. They called her manipulative. 
unable to care for herself in any way, and used her disability as an excuse for her presentation, her dirty clothes, her poor hygiene, and being chained to the bed. Absolutely not. And the social worker is like, yeah, okay. I'm going to read from the social worker's report. Okay. Quote, I am very uncomfortable with the way that Callista is being treated and targeted. I can only hope that it really is necessary for her own protection. I tried to talk Marcia into letting Callista have a toothbrush and toothpaste supervised. It seemed to mean a lot to Callista. Marcia said no. Callista was adamant about Marcia pulling her hair. Callista repeated this inst- incident several times. Callista said that her sisters were not there when it happened. Callista is known to make up stories and she is not credible. It ends up that it is her word against Marcia's. I couldn't tell by looking at the crown of her head that hair was missing. The parents use a device to tie Callista in bed. Anthony said that it is the same device used in adult nursing homes that alert staff and adults that alert staff when adults get out of bed and, are, and roam around. Her sisters say that they have not seen their mother, Marcia, hit Callista, pull her hair, or be mean to her in any way. They say that their mother is very patient with Callista. There's insufficient evidence to prove neglect or abuse. Callista is a vulnerable child. Because she is not believable or credible, she would be an easy target to abuse her. I think we need to check out all complaints regarding her. So, essentially, she's saying, Callista lies, I believe the parents, but she's an easy target for abuse. Yeah, I mean, she is expressing concern. She's Mm -hmm. saying, like, I think we should look into this further, or I believe we should look into this further. She's certainly not making any conclusions. Except that later, when she presented this to her supervisor... They claimed that there is insufficient evidence to establish a case of abuse or neglect, and the case was closed. I agree that the social worker is essentially saying, hey, we need to keep our eyes on this. Mm -hmm. But to, uh, I don't know, it's not enough. I feel like withholding hygiene from a child is abuse. Mm -hmm. I agree. I am certain that their response was, well, she can't be trusted with it. She's not safe with toothpaste. She's not safe with a toothbrush. Then you brush it for her. You brush her Mm -hmm. teeth for her. Like, that's what you Mm -hmm. do. You know, I'm sorry to say, like, it's going to have to be that hands on. But if that's the situation, then you do it for her because Mm -hmm. that's her health. And at this point, you're jeopardizing her health and wellness by withholding that from her. And she was about 13 at this time. Hmm. So she is... Again, if we go by the reports of the other adults that see her and are with her, it seems like they are seeing her as much more capable of doing simple things. And in that report, she's able to express herself very, very clearly. She's Mm -hmm. telling consistent uh, information. She's able to talk about how important the toothbrushing is for her. Like she's Mm -hmm. she's expressing herself effectively. Mm hmm. To me, that does not speak of a severe cognitive impairment or having no reasoning skills or having no impulse control. Mm-hmm. Although the case of abuse would be closed, the social worker would warn Marsha and Anthony that they need to evaluate the use of restraints at night. And she said, quote, if there's a fire, she may not be able to get out. Mm. Despite that, Callista kept trying to tell someone what was happening to her. She was basically screaming to the rooftops. 
I'm being chained to my bed. I'm being abused. I need help. Mm -hmm. Callista would even write letters and notes to her friends, but they were often intercepted and taken away by Marsha. Wow. One letter which she was able to get out to her friend she had written in fifth grade, it read as follows, quote, I gave my stepmother a good long complaint about how she treats me differently. I get hooked up to my bed with plastic tie twisties. I have to put the chain under my blanket. She's putting me deeper into my grave, and when she puts me to bed, I feel blue and start crying. She wrote that as a fifth grader? She wrote that as a fifth grader. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, English teacher, what you thinking? Uh, that... I mean, that would be on the level of what many of my 10th graders are (laughs) writing in letters to their friends. I mean, Mm -hmm. as far as like her ability to to put those ideas together, to put them into like coherent, complex sentences like and and I, you know, we're not questioning whether or not she has disabilities. Right. Like we know that she does. Um, But the the degree of impairment that her family described is mm-hmm. not evident in anything she's actually doing like no. if if it was true what her family was describing what i would expect to see from that kid academically and socially would be little to no like verbal reasoning mm-hmm. i would not expect um much of the writing insofar as like complete sentences or complete ideas or staying on topic or having like a beginning middle and end like all of that tells us that she's she has been able to learn adequately at an appropriate grade level for her age yeah yeah to me that is strong writing for a fifth grader it is and i think it communicates that like and in context of the behaviors that her teachers and classmates were seeing that her LRE probably was the traditional general classroom with special education supports. Yeah. Like she would be like a perfectly, you know, um, capable student that would need the support of her IEP and her teacher of record and stuff like that. But she wouldn't be someone that I would expect to be in like a self-contained classroom, for example, based on what you're telling me. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, I, I always come back to even if she was, I don't care. No, 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 I don't care either. But yeah. I think it, like it just it doesn't sync up with the level of disability that her family is like communicating to the world or trying to justify their actions with. And, and I think that's what it is to me. It's like the the family is using this yeah, like this high level of need and this like very very. The deficit base, the deficits that they are communicating, the deficit based language that they're using is used entirely to justify their treatment of her and their abuse of her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In total, there would be 15 reports of abuse between 1999 and 2004. While Callista was playing over at a friend's house one day in 2005, Callista told that friend's mother that she had been being chained to the bed, forced to wear the same clothes day after day and sometimes being hit with a board for punishment. That parent reported to CPS, however, CPS chose to take no additional action, as this was the same as other reports that had been made and were unfounded, so it just went into the pile of, yeah, we've heard this before. The teachers and these adults were making the reports to to CPS. 
In addition to that, they were bringing her special food. They were letting her wash up whenever they could. They were trying to provide her with these little things, these niceties, food, meals, things like that. Callista also had friends at school that would invite her over and who would try to feed and protect her. Hmm. One day, another day, she went over to a friend's house after school. Callista again complained about being chained to her bed at night. While she was at the friend's house, this parent had gotten a call from the school that said, the principal is coming to pick Callista up and to take her home. Her parents want her home. Hmm. Callista apparently heard this and became, quote, a nervous wreck. She had a full-blown panic attack as soon as she learned that she was being taken home. The parents of this friend kept writing letters and contacting CPS. The parents kept the notes that Callista had written to their daughter as evidence because, again, everybody is feeling like something bad is going to happen to this girl and nobody will do anything. Eventually, after so many reports were filed and seeing no changes, one woman named Sue Guest, this was another parent in the community, a a friend of the parent of one of Callista's friends. After seeing so many reports, the teachers, everybody trying to do so much and CPS not acting, this parent went so far as to write a letter to U.S. State Representative Fred Upton, who represented Centerville, Michigan and St. Joseph County. Mm -hmm. And in this letter, she wrote, someone needs to help her. Does she need to die before anyone listens? Upon receiving the letter, Fred Upton contacted DHS, CPS, Child Human Services, Child Services, same thing. Fred Upton contacted DHS, who communicated that, yes, we're aware of the Springers. We have actively investigated the case, and there is not much else to be done. Shortly after things got that bad, Callista was finally pulled from public school to be homeschooled. So, yeah, essentially, she got pulled into homeschool because there were too many CPS reports. And once you get into homeschooling, I mean, this is kind of like the underground that nobody talks about with homeschooling is that it is just, it's a way to hide abuse. Mm -hmm. Not for all, obviously, homeschooling can be great and can be wonderful. But in situations like this, when a kid is randomly and suddenly pulled from public school into homeschooling, teachers worry. Mm Mm-hmm. Callista would have been about 13 years old at this time when she was pulled out of public school into being homeschooled. The Springers basically justified this by saying that she has too many special needs that they can't address at school. But really, they did this to isolate Callista. They did this so that nobody else could see the bruises on her. Nobody else could see how dirty, how underfed she was. And for the next three years, Callista would have next to no social contact. She would rarely be seen out of the house. God, that's so messed up. Now, to be clear, Callista's sisters remained in school. Teachers and staff said that they basically presented as completely normal kids. They were cleanly dressed, they appeared well-fed, groomed, prepared for school every day. One teacher commented that they seemed like they were from completely different families. The last known picture of Callista was taken on June 9th, 2006 by her grandmother, Suzanne. Callista is pictured with her sisters and their dog, their dog Chomper. While her sisters smile brightly, Callista stares at the ground mm. with little expression on her face. This was one of the last times that Suzanne or anyone else outside of the home would see Callista. 
Suzanne stated that after Callista was pulled out from public school, she felt a noticeable shift in the family dynamic, and she felt that she was no longer welcome in the home. Are you looking up the picture? Mm-hmm. She looks so young. She doesn't look 16. No, she looks, if you told me she was 11, I would believe you. Yeah, I was going to say, she. Pro- I would probably call her 12, maybe in that picture. Now, like I said, there's very little known about Callista's life between 2006 and that day in February in 2008. When firefighters got to Callista's room, they saw an emaciated girl chained to her bed, no blankets, pillows, sheets, no comfort at all. And honestly, who's to say how long she was there? Yeah. How much of her days and her nights she spent chained to that bed? Marcia said in her testimony that she had just put Callista in the bed for 15 minutes so that she could clean up the house. And people can believe as much of that story as they choose to. Mm. Like I said, this case initially came out as a simple, oh, what a tragedy for this family. But as these stories came out about the concerns for Callista, the reports of abuse, this investigation just got deeper and deeper. And the more it was investigated, the more defiant Anthony Springer and to a lesser extent Marsha became. Mm. A search of the house never found the fire extinguisher that Marsha claimed that she was trying to use. It also found that the medical alarm that they claimed was broken and the reason why they had to use the dog collar was working just fine when it was tested. Hmm. It had simply been tossed aside. Wow. They also found that Callista had somewhere between, oh, I think I said eight to ten. It was six to eight Benadryl in her system at the time of the fire. That's a lot. That's a lot of Benadryl. Like one one Benadryl makes me feel drowsy. Mm-hmm. Thinking one about- Benadryl is all is all I need to go to bed. And that's a dose, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a dose. Yeah. So, I mean, and you're telling me that a 90-pound child has six of these thrumming through their system? Like, you would be... There's no way... You'd be knocked... You'd be on unconscious. You'd be knocked out. Yeah. Although Callista had burns across her legs, it was the smoke in- inhalation that had killed her. And it's... There was no way she was ever going to survive this. I can only hope that she was asleep during the smoke inhalation. Yeah. I think that is the only kindness that could have happened to her. Yeah. Um, however, the investigation was unable to prove that the fire had been caused intentionally, and the source did appear to be the vacuum. Even that just seems absurd to me, but <laughs> I've never had one of these vacuums, so... I mean, way back in the 90s, we had one of those old-ass school vacuums that would smoke when the belt would get too hot. But how long does it have to take between the vacuum getting a little heated and your entire house being in so engulfed in flame that you have to leave somebody inside? And the the pictures of the house, it looked, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, that fire damage was serious, but it was also only to a segment of the house. Yeah. Yeah, I just think, like, reasonably speaking, if you're doing that and your vacuum cleaner starts to smoke. Why would you start it again? You don't start it again. You put it in the bathtub. or I don't know. You douse some water (laughs) on it. You throw it outside something. But This is 2008. Like, I don't think that they, like, are you using, like, a vacuum from, like, the 60s? And maybe you are. I mean, we don't know anything about, like, their economic status, or it hasn't been stated at least. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you don't have a lot and that's what you got, that's what you got, whatever. But I just – and and looking at the house, houses are also very large. 
mm-hmm. um, which is very common in these like small towns, these like big yeah. rambling old houses. Yep. Um, it just, I have to suspend a lot of disbelief to make sense out of like a small to medium sized appliance beginning to smoke and a segment of your house like burning the fuck down. Yeah. Because the smoke damage, the, the fire damage is bad. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. And we've talked about before, it is very hard to prove arson. Mm-hmm. And again, like those, the warnings from the social worker about like, oh, if there's a fire, you know, you don't want her to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Is just, I don't know. Yeah. Full speculation, but. Right. But did that give her an idea? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Especially the comments that, oh, we're going to give her up to foster care when she's 12, but she'll probably die by then. Mm-hmm. Like who, who says that? Yeah, you don't say that. You don't say that. Obviously, police were still investigating. They wanted to know why the hell Callista was tied up there and how long this had been going on. But Anthony and Marcia just stuck to the story. Callista was disabled. Anthony described her as mildly retarded and reiterated that this was for her safety. She can't be trusted without being chained to the bed. Um, he insisted they were only using the dog chain temporarily. He submitted the papers that there were no founded accusations of abuse or neglect. He kept the papers from the 1997 from 1997 that apparently showed that Callista would never have good judgment or impulse control. He kept all of this documentation, which I also think is kind of weird. Mm. But also, I don't know if you have that many CPS cases against you when you're in that much denial. Mm-hmm. And you're trying that hard to prove that your daughter is so severely disabled that she that you have to chain her to the bed. I just, I don't know. He added, for no good reason, that he never expected Callista to do anything with her life and that his highest hope for her was to be in an adult facility after she turned 18 anyway. These statements are very, very often used in cases of filicide to justify mm-hmm. the murder. That, oh, it's not that much of a tragedy because this person was never going to accomplish anything. It's a way of just dehumanizing people. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't care what the severity of her disability was. Mm-hmm. She is still a human. Yeah, and we've talked before about, like, you get the kid you get. Mm-hmm. And you do your best by that kid. And he fought for her. Mm-hmm. Is like one of the things that I find really interesting in cases like this is he fought the courts for years to have her mother's rights terminated only to chain her to her bed. Yeah. Why? Yeah, that's really Contr- interesting. Like control, manipulation? Like. Yeah. I mean, the, the the one picture I saw of her as a baby probably looked maybe 18 months old or so. So well after that time that they were describing her as like a 14-month-old with like a despondent stare and no interaction <laughs> and all that. She's like smiling adorably at the camera like a toddler would. Oh, my God. I've seen the picture. She's yeah. so freaking cute. So, I mean, and again, like to, to really reiterate that whatever like – layers or levels of disability that she has does not matter in the scope of it does not make her death less of a tragedy it does not make it less of a crime it does not make her less of a human person um with any less value but i also just feel like they're lying about what 
was going on with her as a way to justify their actions. I'm so curious as to kind of their cognitive processes about this, because like we talked a little bit about kind of the scare tactics used by Autism Speaks and other organizations around this time. And I, part of me wonders like, oh, were they told that she has autism or PDD? And then that just filled their brain with, oh, she is this monster. Mm -hmm. She is this beast. And therefore we have to treat her this way. Yeah. And then all of their actions after that were justified and self-fulfilling. When people who knew her just as a person didn't see any of that stuff. Yeah. And again, like I, I am continually want to come back to what was observed in the classroom as well. Just Mm -hmm. like, you know, with this idea that like, you know, the father is justifying everything by saying he never thought she would amount to Mm -hmm. anything at all. Like what we know about her, like academic performance and her life at school is like that, that was not in any way, shape or form what Callista's story had to be or or could have been right no this didn't have to happen if her father and marcia had just simply seen her as a human being Mm -hmm. yeah and that's what it boils down to so in december 2008 anthony and marcia would be charged with manslaughter and first degree child abuse However, in 2009, just like the next month, January 2009, a new prosecutor was put on the case that would reach for felony murder and torture charges. In the course of the investigation, additional information that would come forward about Callista's treatment in the Springer home, they learned that Callista would be forced to sit or stand on one square marked out in tape in the living room, and if she didn't stand perfectly still, she would be forced to place her nose on a piece of tape against the wall Sometimes being forced to stand on her tiptoes to reach this, sometimes for extended periods of time, up to an hour. Ugh. Uh, Essentially forcing her into stress positions Mm -hmm. that, again, setting her up for failure. When she was given dinner, she was made to sit on the floor and giving only small portions to eat. She was rarely ever allowed outside of the home, even in the front of her backyard. When she was, she was required to sit on her front porch with her head between her knees, sometimes for more than an hour while her sisters played flea played freely around her because of the impact of the community and how many people knew Callista and the Springers the trial would be moved from Centerville Michigan to nearby Kalamazoo but would be overseen by a St. Joseph County judge Paul Statesman at trial 80 witnesses including friends teachers and counselors would testify one friend stated that Callista was treated lower than the animals in the home Friends and friends' parents stated that they feared for Callista's life and did what they felt they could to help her, giving her food, giving her a place to wash up, giving her simple kindnesses. Teachers testified that Callista was a normal girl who could read, write, and learn, just like her peers. Her behavioral and emotional problems were minor from what they saw within the classroom. Others, including Marcia's sister and the Springers, would testify that Callista was out of control, unable to keep herself safe, and was in danger of the and was a danger to the entire family. They insisted that Marcia and Anthony were doing the best they could. Everything they did, from the chains to the Benadryl, were necessary because of her disabilities and behaviors. Callista's sisters would testify that Callista wasn't always chained up, only some of the time. Marcia stated that she had only just chained Callista up, and stated that she had only planned to do it for 15 minutes after she and would let her out after she finished vacuuming. 
Springers and their attorneys did their best to deflect blame on social services, on the community. Their attorney gave this statement. Quote, I think they made mistakes, the Springers. Maybe in how they tried to deal with the situation, but the situation with Callista was real, and it had to be dealt with in some way. We can argue if there were better ways. There probably was. I think the overwhelming issue is the community knew about this. The Michigan Department of Human Services knew about this, and certainly the schools knew about this. Do they have to take some responsibility for what was a very unfortunate result? Yes. Mm. So the attorneys are trying to blame the schools, they're trying to blame DHS, they're trying Mm-mm. to blame everybody but the Springers. Mm-mm. No, thank you, sir. As a teacher, what the hell can you do? I like, mean... A, a, your heart wants to take this kid home, I'm sure. Oh, it totally And you know does. that you can't. Yeah. And I mean, you have these kids over and over and over again, and you do want to take them home. And all you can really do and that we have to do is that you keep making the calls. And that's what we're told is you keep making the calls. You call every time. You call if you suspect something. Not not just if you are told something directly, but if you suspect something, you call. Because it's always better to call and be wrong than to not call and be right, right, about what you're seeing. So, um, but beyond that, you are limited. Like, I've had situations where I have, like, um, bought groceries for students and, like, told them, like, it's outside my room at 4 o'clock. Make sure you grab it on your way home if I knew that, you know, mom and dad can't afford it this week or... Or mom ran off. I had a student once that um, mom just like up and left. And it was a, a like a, a 17 year old girl caring for all of her siblings. And I was buying groceries for, you know, yeah. probably a couple of months uh, and making the calls like you you do all of it. Right. And mm-hmm. some of that stuff like, you know, you buy the coats, you buy the shoes, you, you do the best you can. Um, but you can't really do more than that. We're moving away from home visits like teacher home visits which were pretty common in the 90s and earlier but um, we've moved away from those for like liability reasons obviously and so safety mm-hmm. and safety I used to do home visits as a therapist and there is a genuine risk to your safety mm-hmm. yeah and it, they used to be in Michigan I know for sure in the 90s there was an expectation that the home would be visited by a teacher um, wow. typically before the school year started or in the first month of the school year and that that expectation was laid out pretty clearly and that expectation no longer exists. So you're again, like, obviously for safety reasons, but that's like one less opportunity to see what's really going on. But yeah, at the end of the day, all you can really do is like, you can make the calls, you sneak them some food, you sneak them some clothes, you listen, you hook them up with as many services within the school as possible, therapy, you know, within the school setting, social work, all that stuff. But your hands are tied to a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. And my my husband and I talk about this a lot, about the double bind that teachers are constantly put in. Mm-hmm. Of you're never doing enough, but you're always being told to do more. Mm-hmm. You're, you're responsible for the safety and the protection of these kids, but – you're not allowed to talk to them about X, Y, and Z issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I'm expected to take a bullet from your kid, but I cannot affirm their uh, gender identity. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like you are at the end of like this lawyer is saying teachers were responsible for keeping this kid safe, but had they tried to take this kid home? Oh God, no, they would have been a fucking arrested. And 
I mean, this is not a situation where teachers had suspicions and didn't call. Like, there were Mm -hmm. multiple, multiple calls made. Multiple calls by Mm. friends, by teachers, by other family members. Mm -hmm. Anthony Springer's own mother was one of the people making the calls against him. Yeah, there was no shortage of outcry for help for this kid. And Anthony Springer was one of the first to jump onto the bandwagon to blame, quote, society. Society and the system that have are at fault as much as we are and you're just happy to cast us aside while you don't look at yourselves like it is really irrational thought processes of just trying to deflect blame Mm -hmm. um again his mother suzanne was one of the ones who made some of the calls and i'm sure they got into tons of arguments about it about how he treated callista she seemed to want to help and offered to help but was never successful in changing their treatment of Callista or trying to change anything. Mm. Um, Eventually, so the trial would finally end on April 16th, 2010 um, and Judge Paul Statesman would make the following statement. He said, quote, there's plenty of blame to go around for everybody. I think it's fair to say the state of Michigan failed you and your family clearly. Those charged to protect her did not do their jobs. We're here today not because of something they did, but because they didn't protect her from you. Hmm. Anthony was found guilty of child abuse. He was sentenced to 10 years for child abuse, and he was also found guilty on on torture charges, sentenced to an additional 25 to 50 years. Wow. Marsha would be found guilty on child abuse, 8 to 15 years, and torture, 19 years. These sentences would all be served concurrently. Mm. They were not found guilty of murder because, again, they could find no evidence that of arson or arson or intentional fire setting. Mm. Their sentence would be controversial somehow because there was at least one uh, one outspoken person who felt the need to write a letter to M. Lai that got a lot of publishing and attention, saying, "You just don't understand these families, and you don't understand how hard it is to raise a kid with disabilities." And he got mad at mourners and people who created a vigil for Callista, saying that they had no right to co-opt her death and that this was the family's right to mourn. But it didn't seem to me like they were mourning very much. Well, screw this guy. Anthony and Marsha are still in prison. Anthony remains defiant to this day that he did anything wrong when it comes to his care for Callista, constantly saying that you just don't understand. And Marsha at least gave an apology at her sentencing, saying Mm. she's sorry for what happened. But, of course, an apology is never enough. Calissa had the right to live and had the right to a full life, no matter what her disabilities were, no matter what the severity and what her level of needs were. And if the Springers couldn't provide that, they should have looked elsewhere. Because chaining a child to a bed and putting their child in harm's way, neglecting her, abusing her, and malnourishing her and drugging her and drugging her is no way to treat any human being Mm -mm. and that is the story of Callista Springer well you broke me as promised so good job thanks that is the story of one of many victims of filicide yeah um like I said, I really encourage you guys to check out the National Disability Day of Mornings website. Mm-hmm. If you really want to be broken, because some of the stories on there are oh, rough. They are. I mean, I've I've browsed it before, and it's just... But it's also important to 
acknowledge these things as real, you know, Mm -hmm. and these victims as real people with, you know, their own like full lives that were taken from them, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and it's exactly right. Like you, you get that you get the child that you get and you got to care for them to the best of your ability. And sometimes your ability might mean that, you know, you have in-home care or you do have to, you know, hospitalize them or do whatever, but you do, you do what you got to do to keep them safe mm-hmm. and to keep them mm-hmm. well and to support them and to, to help them live to their potential, whatever that potential is. And I don't think any of us, either of us, especially are being flippant about what that means when mm-hmm. you say like you get the kid that you get, like each of these kids needs to be celebrated and needs to be cared for and needs to have their right to life acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And yes, sometimes that is hard. Yeah. Yeah, it really can be. And so, I mean, it's just that it's not even necessarily that you commit to caring for your kid, like in day-to-day reality. It's that you commit to ensuring that your kid is cared for day-to-day. Mm-hmm. If you cannot provide that care, somebody can. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are parents that do have to make that really difficult decision of like, do I have the capacity to care for this kid? Do mm-hmm. I need to surrender this? You know, do I need to do I need full time hospital care for this kid? And what would that mean? What would that look like? And those are really, really difficult decisions. Mm-hmm. And you never want to belittle those decisions because they are. I have no doubt that they are impossible decisions. Mm hmm. But when you're looking at that or torturing and drugging and restraining and, you know, like, I just feel like there was a there was a choice made by Anthony Springer and Marsha to do what they did. They had many choices and they chose what Mm -hmm. they did. And whatever was going on with Callista does not justify those actions whatsoever. Nope. Yeah. And I know, like, I talked about, like, her sisters kind of testified at court. I don't want to put any of this on her sisters whatsoever. They were kids. They were kids, yeah. And who knows what they would say now, but they were kids then, so. Yeah, and being told what to say and probably, I mean, it sounds like, Anthony sounds like a terrifying fucking person. Yeah, yeah, I'm certain they were scared. I have no doubt that they were scared. No doubt whatsoever. Yeah, well, I mean, I would just also say that, like, you know, it's important to hear these stories, to read these stories, to acknowledge these people, to, you know, we have lots and lots of different awareness weeks and they exist for a reason and awareness days and all that stuff. And, you know, like it's sometimes I've really like, you know, I, I talk a lot about when we have cases that like are related, like I talk a lot about like medical parenting and medical advocacy and that kind of stuff. Like I think prior to having a medical kid, I didn't, I questioned the purpose of these awareness days and awareness weeks to some degree. But when you, when that is your lived reality, sometimes it really is enough that people know what the hell is going on. They know that this is a thing that happens. Yeah. And it's not an expectation of action necessarily on your part or anything like that. It's just, please know, like, please be aware, please have this, make a commitment to the understanding, to the education, to, you know, to the, to the acknowledgement, right? And that's Mm -hmm. really, 
in in many ways like that's just what's being asked for it's not anything more than that you know yeah and i think i don't know i feel like i've just been on like my soapboxy shit lately and i don't really care but (laughs) (laughs) um i feel like some of these there are like those awareness days and awareness weeks that are fun and exhilarating and like who doesn't fucking love pride week and Mm -hmm. whatever and then there are ones that are less sexy yes like people don't really want to celebrate the disability day of mourning or the trans day of mourning um but it's very very important yeah and it's it's history it's part of our shared history as human beings Mm. yay yeah good food for thought my friend but yeah, I mean, I think just like reserve some space to think about Callista and and other people that have lost their lives to fill aside in these types of circumstances, you know, to create the space for that. Yay. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks That's for the call hearing. to action. Thanks for hearing my bullshit. Mm. Are you talking to me or the audience? Everybody. Okay. <laughs> I'm just well, speaking into the you're ether welcome. at this point. <laughs> you're welcome. Like most days, I'm just talking about <laughs> Well, here, let's talk about next week, and then I need to go because my computer is going to die, and I want to make sure that I am <laughs> able to get this recording before it dies. Okay, good, um, because I need about to pee my pants. Okay. So uh, next week for Real Real, I will do um, – <laughs> We will discuss the uh, the, the missing um, Skelton brothers. So these are three little boys missing out of South Central Michigan. Uh, they have been missing now for over a decade, about a decade and a half. Um, and their disappearance is wrapped up in many layers of familial dysfunction and um, lies and deceit and a lot of smoke and mirrors. And um, I want to kind of take the time to really dig into what do we know happened? What are the possibilities of what happened? Where might these boys be? Um, and what else can be done? All right. I'm yes. excited. I really, I like this case a lot because there's, I like to talk about it because there's so many pieces to dig into. There are a so. lot of pieces and it's um, very complicated to put together. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. So please come back for that. In the meantime, God, my computer is dying. Like the screen just went dim. Uh, So we're just going to kind of blast through our outro here. Um, Please come back for that. Please engage with us on the socials. We love it. We love you. Uh, Case suggestions. We are absolutely always open to. So if you have anything you want to hear about, we Uh, are here for it. Or midwretched at At gmail.com. Yeah, we're here for it. Yeah. 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 So please let us know. Thanks, friends. Yes. We love you. Eat cheese. Uh, Stay warm. Uh, Watch out for deer. Call us when you get home. Yep, that one too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, bye, everybody. Bye, guys. The crew is searching for a sanctuary. They find it. Oh, no, it's terrible. They're separated. They're back on the road searching for a sanctuary. They find it. It's terrible. You know.